Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting on editing this episode. You can learn more about his work, as usual, at idealvideostrategies.com. I also want to take a minute to thank Logan for his recent five-star rating and review of this show. I really appreciate your support, and thank you for sending me that message on Facebook to let me know you did it. If you find value in this podcast like Logan does, please consider leaving your own five-star rating and review in iTunes. Finally, if you haven't joined the ADHD Essentials Facebook community yet, we'd love to have you. In it, you'll find support for parenting your child with ADHD and managing your own challenges. I even do the occasional live Q&A. Go to facebook.com groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Renee Brooks of Black Girl Lost Keys. Renee is a member of the ADHD tribe and a return guest. She's currently raising awareness for black women's mental health as part of the Crazy Like a Fox tour. The tour will be in Philly on Sunday at location 215, and then they'll be at the Impact Hub in Baltimore on July 27th. Go to crazylikeafoxtour.com for more details. In today's episode, Renee and I share some of our ADHD struggles and vulnerabilities while discussing ADHD and self-esteem, the importance of asking for help, the intersection of mental health and race, and the power of networking. I do want to throw a quick heads up out there, just in case. We do discuss mass shootings at one point during this interview. In case that's a concern or something that may upset you, I want to let you know it's there. All right. Let's get rolling. So, hi, Renee. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good, Brendan. How have you been? It's good to be on again. I gave myself a rule that I would only repeat after I had done episode 50. And episode 70 dropped last week. So, uh, I guess I can repeat people now. <laughs> I've been waiting. I remembered when you said 50 and you told me I could come back. So, I, I knew it was about time. So you said you just want to kind of talk self-esteem stuff and and self-esteem through the lens of ADHD. So let's go. I went through a recent struggle with self-esteem myself. I had kind of gotten away from, you know how we do, we get sloppy with our management and then we start to kind of beat ourselves up. And, And in doing that, I realized that until I started working on my self-esteem and got that back into alignment, it didn't matter how many calendars I had or which app I had to remind me because that emotional pain is just as much of a distraction as the ADHD is. I'm with you. I'm having that with my emails right now. Oh, gosh. Emails are killing me. Emails are a little bit of a shame farm at the moment. Emails are kind of the, like, you know what? I actually, I hired a business manager and 
giving her access to my email was one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. When I gave her access to my email, Brandon, I had 14,000 emails. Nice. I was like, I could explain, but I don't think I have an explanation. (laughs) She was just like, you know what she did? She went in and archived every last one of them. I never had to see them again. Holy cow. And it was like, just the the strain of not like it's back up to 700 now by the way is shani I'm, I'm working on it i'm on 364 unread emails inside is 1696 i know it's 700 in the main inbox i don't know how many are in the others but you are not alone brendan we are like there's just there's too many of them like it's like sometimes i think i would just Maybe it's just time to get a whole new email address and just forget that one exists. <laughs> like it's the electronic equivalent of just leaving the house with all the mess in it and just moving somewhere else. And one of the advantages to the to the parents out there that they can give to their kids, right? I'm from the era of email being new. I remember when you couldn't even send like an image; it would take four years for an image to download on an like line by line in an email. And so I didn't grow up knowing how to manage it, right? But kids today, they know you should have a personal email. You should have a professional email once you're old enough to care about that. And you should have an email for nonsense, like an email for, hey, do you want to buy this thing? Or do you want to get this really interesting download that you can only get if you give us your email? You need to have an extra email for that stuff to help manage the other two. Bingo. And I'm one of those awful people who uses the same email address for everything. And that's how you get to 14,000 emails. Right. And I'm sure there's people who have differentiated their email even more than I just did with three different categories. You know what? That's that's one of the things that I'm hoping that like I'm trying to get there because it's just easier organizationally. I'm a little bit of a freebie hoarder, so I'm always signing up for something. I'm the guy who's like, that looks cool. I'll give you my email for that. And then I don't ever look at it like not ever, especially like when they give you the download right away. So you download it and then it just sits in your downloaded files and you're like, that thing is swamped with like photos and other nonsense. Like I'm not a, a physical hoarder. I am a digital hoarder. Like God forbid if anybody ever looked through all the stuff I downloaded and all my emails, it's a nightmare. <laughs> I still, I shouldn't say still, but I'm, I'm a recently recovered, I guess, person who's like, oh, that's a cool ADHD thing that I should totally download and look at and, and learn from. But I've hit the point and I don't want to, this, I feel like I'm tooting my own horn, but it probably, this is something that I should be saying given what I do for a living. Toot it because I know what you're going to say and you're right. Yeah. Like I already know. I, I don't need to download the thing anymore because it's just a slightly different twist on something that I already know if it's even a different twist. And I'm like, why did I download that? Now I just have that information in infographic form. That is not just tooting your own horn. That's the absolute truth. And so now I'm like, I've got way more 
ADHD infographics and lists of 10 things than I ever need. There's only so much variation we can put on it. And, but I think, I really do think that we don't talk enough about bolstering self-esteem in ADHD management. It was like we were saying before, um, before we hit record, I was saying when you're trying to learn how to manage your ADHD, it's kind of like managing your ADHD is off in the corner of the attic and you have to sort through all the junk before you can get to the corner of the attic where managing your ADHD is because you have to feel like you're worth it before you can effectively manage your ADHD. And it, it like, I'm not saying like, I don't know if you feel the same way that I do, but I, I think self-esteem is one of those things that we'll always be working on. It's not like you're never going to achieve some perfect end where you're like, okay, I'm done working on my self-esteem now. Like there's always new challenges that life will throw at you. So it just like we continue to maintain working on our ADHD, we have to maintain working on our self-esteem. Mine is variable right? Like it kind of depends on the category of what we're looking at. Yeah. Like I'm coming off of the busiest, it was probably two months. I can only remember back a month by way of weekends and be like, I was doing so many things. And I don't remember what happened before the Cub Scout camping trip that I know I melted down prior to the Cub Scout camping trip. And that was just the middle of whatever was going on for me. I, I went through a season just now. Uh, it felt like a season. Let's call it a season instead of a month or a half, two months of lots and lots of workshops. I, I was doing upwards of two workshops a week, which doesn't sound like a lot, I suppose. And that's not including all of the other stuff, right? So my, my days are typically some variation of take the kids to school, meet with a client, go be a principal for like three or four hours come home, meet with a client, pick the kids up, meet with a client. Then it's time to help them with their homework um, if they haven't already done that. And then blended into that is going to the dojo, doing Cub Scout stuff with the kids, being a husband. And also I was doing two workshops a week (laughs) and also weekend stuff at the time. Like we had, I had that Cub Scout camping trip, which I was responsible for making apple crisp in a Dutch oven, which I had never done before. So I was learning this entirely new cooking method. Oh, wow. Which is great because I'm going to figure out Dutch oven cooking over the summer because it's fun. But that was a piece. And then I did I did a comic book convention called ComerCon. ComerCon is a sensory-friendly comic book convention that my friend Adam Wilson runs. It's awesome. It's for folks on the autism spectrum, folks with ADHD, folks with sensory processing needs. And it's just, it's calmer. <laughs> it's, it's like there's... He, opens it through in two sessions of about four hours each so that the first group is gone and then the next group comes in so that there's fewer people there. He's got, um, instead of being one big warehouse room, it, he, this time it took place at a college. So it was like various classrooms and sort of cafeteria type areas where they were taking pictures with superheroes and they were meeting with folks selling comic books and meeting with uh, community resources. I was there as an ADHD person. Also cosplayers walking around and, and Jedi training and costume contests. And it was really cool. He did a phenomenal job. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing that, he, that he's done. His son has autism. So he, uh, he did that. Can you put that link in the show notes? I really want to track that down. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got, I took all kinds of pictures with cosplay people and made terrible, terrible <laughs> jokes about them. 
Like I took a picture of Batman in front of my sign and said, Batman stopped by. It turns out Robin has ADHD. Is that a symptom of ADHD? Because I feel like I make really terrible jokes too. Like maybe that's just a coping mechanism. Like maybe we need to add that to the DSM. Like <laughs> It might be. <laughs> but yeah, so that those weeks, because then after that I did, uh, I went to Vermont. I drove to New Jersey for Rosh Hashanah. Like it, it's just a lot of, a lot of busy, busyness. And this weekend I finally stopped and I was, I was useless to everybody on Saturday. Like I just wanted everyone to go away, but also I'm learning I'm bad at expressing my needs because I didn't feel comfortable being like, no, I need everyone to just leave me alone and let me sit on the couch and watch like a TV show for an hour or two. And that's, that's completely self-esteem stuff, right? Like when someone comes up to you and is like, what's going on? Do you just need a, do you just need a break? And you're like, well, no, because clearly you're over here because you need something. So what can I do? <laughs> and that's exactly it. Like that's what, that lack of self-esteem and you know part of it is that we're trying to compensate for all the other times that we've irritated people with our symptoms so it's like if I'm really really good and I'm accommodating and I'm flexible with you maybe you'll understand the next time I show up an hour late or or the next time that I forget your birthday like I might not be able to get there for that but I can do this for you and next, the next thing you know, you're running around doing all of these things, trying to serve people and kind of missing what you need. And then we're afraid to ask for what we need because in many ways we feel like a burden and it all trickles back to the self-esteem. So then you don't get what you need. Right. And I, I personally tend to push myself really hard to not have the small slip-ups and to avoid the small slip ups, but it's just not maintainable. So eventually I have a day like I had on Saturday when I'm just kind of cranky and annoyed with everything, but trying to not be cranky and annoyed with everything. So I'm totally swallowing that and trying to be in a better mood than I actually am and those kinds of things. It, it took for me, I went to a conference the other week and it was a ton of people and it's super loud and it's super high energy and a lot of participation, and I was in complete sensory overload. And then there was a lot of personal development involved. So you're, you're in an emotional place, and you're overstimulated, and you already know what happened. Mm-hmm. Complete and total meltdown. Right. How bad was it? It was bad. Like, I, I think I ran away to my hotel room at one point. Like, I just, I was like, my friend was like, you just said you were going to lunch and then you like walked off. You didn't ask if anybody wanted to come or anything and you never do that. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I was just completely and to- like, I, I wasn't me in that second. It was just like, I've got to get out of here and away from this noise. And that, I think that we owe it to ourselves to communicate better about what we need. And I think maybe, and here, here we go again, like going back to, the shame factor, I think that on some level, so many of us, especially when we're high functioning, we feel bad about needing things that other people don't need, that neurotypical thing people need. Like we feel like, well, I shouldn't need that. I should be able to tough it out. And also ADHD has this weird spot, I guess, on the disabilities spectrum where it's kind of the most ninja 
of all of the disorders. Like it's so ninja. You can't see it. You can't tell that it's there. Even when it's shutting you down, it's really hard for people outside to see that that's ADHD. Yes. I was thinking about this with my wife because she and I were talking and she was like, what's, what do you need? What's going on? Like, you just want everybody to go away. Do you, do you just need a break? Which is making me feel bad that I need that. Right. But she doesn't recognize that that's happening. But in my head, I'm like, I'm realizing, and I'm not expressing this. I should have been, but I, it was really hard for me to do that. That where I was, was the equivalent of her having a debilitating migraine, right? My wife gets chronic migraines. She gets like 20 migraines a month, two or three times a month. I shouldn't say that. Maybe it's one or two. Somewhere between one and three times a month. It's like she's in bed. She's not doing anything. Oh, my God. We're working on it. She's gone through all of the medications. Botox is next. You know what? Tell her hang on for Botox. I've heard miraculous things about Botox. Hopefully. I got my fingers crossed for you guys because that's oh, that's awful. Yeah, it, and it it's her stuff is a little more obvious, right? Like at least when it's debilitating, when she's shut down and has to just be in the bedroom and not do anything, that's at least clear. But even even for me, right? I'm overwhelmed. I'm flooded. I got nothing, right? But I f- don't have any pain, and so I feel like I should be able to just tough it out and keep going forward. And I can, like I can go to the supermarket and buy some groceries or I could cook dinner or whatever, except that that's going to make it even harder for the next hour, two hours, tomorrow, whatever. We want to be able to do everything. And it's, you know what? It's almost like you can feel these things coming and it doesn't like you're so busy trying to manage it internally that you're spending all of that energy on trying to manage it. And it, it almost distracts you away from being able to tell people I'm about to fall over the edge because you're so busy expending that energy, trying to stay away from the edge for as long as possible. I think we owe it to ourselves to be able to do a little bit better, but it's hard because sometimes people don't understand. Sometimes they're just like, I need you to be who I need you to be in this moment. And why can't you? Because sometimes we can do it and sometimes we can't. It's just like chronic pain. Like people start to think that it's intentional or you're being malingering when you're really not. You're just, you're just being who you can be. And when the pressure's on, I, I think it's more likely for us to have a meltdown. So it, it's like some of the most important moments when you really want to be there for yourself or the person you're supporting, you might go into a meltdown. And then that adds on to the pile of shame. Right. Yeah. And even even asking for help when you're when you're struggling adds on to the pile of shame, right? Because it's like it does. Let me be vulnerable about the thing that is making it so hard for me to do this all of the other things. Yes. And that makes it hard for me to be vulnerable. Ah, I can't be vulnerable right now, even though I should be. It's like I don't want you to help me. I want to be able to do it by myself. I just want to be able to get through this one thing. Why is it so hard? And it's ridiculous because if someone had come to one of us, like most of the ADHD people I know are some of the most understanding and compassionate people I've ever met in my life. And the way that we treat ourselves, we would never allow someone who was in our circle or under our protection to be spoken to and treated the way we treat ourselves. And having those sort of darker thoughts about yourself, right? Those sort of crueler thoughts. 
it's one thing if you're talking to someone who has ADHD, but if they don't, you can't get the same kind of understanding about it because they just don't have that same measure of inconsistency and unreliability, even for yourself. It's fun when you're explaining it to people and you watch them look more and more and more like, what the hell are you talking about? And it's like, do you remember the the Will Ferrell movie, Blades of Glory? Yes, vaguely. So Will Ferrell's character is a sex addict and he's like trying to explain being a sex addict to people. And he's like, no, it's a real disorder with doctors and medicine. And that's how I feel when I'm trying to explain ADHD to people. Like, no, it's a real disorder with doctors and medicine. I know it sounds like I'm making it up and it does sound made up. I can pay attention when it's something I really, really like. But when it's something I don't like, I can't pay attention to it at all. One of the things that I like to point out around the, the self-esteem and shame spiral stuff that, that ADHD can bring, because it's so, it's so completely ADHD in a nutshell and so completely makes no sense if you think about it for more than 10 minutes all at the same time, which is it's completely logical that people with ADHD don't write things down even though they know they're not going to remember it and they should really write it down. And it's because writing things down reminds us of that flaw and reminds us of that weakness and that vulnerability and that emotional weight causes us to avoid writing stuff down. And oftentimes we go like, no, I'll remember that. And we pretend that we're way better at remembering things than we actually are because looking at the truth is too frightening. It's frightening and it's painful and it can make you feel weak. Like we assign all these emotional values to these executive functions and they're just like, as we're explaining to people that we shouldn't stigmatize people for having issues with executive function, we're stigmatizing ourselves. I should be able to remember this. So you're always like hoping like this time I'm going to remember it. This time I'm going to show up on time. This time I'm not going to get distracted because I've been working on it and I'm so much better at it. And, and we really deny ourselves a lot of the support that we need because we don't feel like we deserve the support. As a coach, like I work with that a lot with my clients, right? And some of the tools that I use to help people manage that stuff revolve pretty heavily around permission. Yes. And I, I often equate, I'm, I'm sure my listeners are tired of hearing it at this point, but it's so valuable and potent that I'm going to share it anyway. Um, I often equate ADHD to asthma. Yes. Because if I have an asthma attack, no one's going to get upset with me. They're not going to be like, oh, you're just too lazy to breathe. But if I forget someone's birthday or I fail to run that errand that I'm supposed to run, there are people out there who are like, oh, you're just too lazy to care about that thing. And that's not what's going on, right? Right. In the same way that I'm allowed to not be able to breathe sometimes because I have asthma, I'm also allowed to forget your birthday because I have ADHD. I'm allowed to go to the store and not come home with milk, even though that's the only reason I went to the store. And now I have four muffins and a bag of chips, and 15 apples, but I don't have the milk that's supposed to happen. <laughs> I'm allowed. And sometimes the ADHD wins. 
I think we spend entirely too much time as ADHD people trying to win over the person who thinks we're awful for getting for forgetting the birthday or not making it on time. We don't have to win those people over. I think we've got, I think we should explain it a few times. And if they're not going to get on board, we're going to have to start letting those people go. And, and I think we also have to find out what other people actually think of us and what they see in us. Cause there's people who hang out with us, who spend time with us and care about us and enjoy our company. And they might see us in a way that we don't see ourselves. Like I had a conversation with a buddy of mine last night um, who they did like a family for some family friends came over and he was talk like he was clearly impressed with what I've built and what I've done and sees a measure of resilience and getting knocked down and standing back up again kind of thing in me that I didn't realize he saw, right? That is not my subtext for when I'm spending time with people. When I'm spending time with people, my subtext in my head is these people are doing better than I am. <laughs> and yes, and so I need to keep trying to prove that I get to hang in this company. What does Brene Brown call it? The story that I'm telling myself. I think if we were able to come to a place of honesty where we could say what we needed instead of trying so hard to appear neurotypical we would be able to hear much more of that i see how hard you're trying i've i've noticed that this is an area of struggle for you and i want to help i i know that this is too much noise for you so if you have to step out i won't be insulted we don't give people a chance to show us how much they care and how much they're not bothered by it and and we don't get to hear the story they're telling themselves about us ever and those are stories that we need to hear and not not just people with adhd people in general i think this is a message that can apply to anybody oh and while we're on here let me tell you about how i finally got to sit down and watch the video about the wall of awful brendan everybody needs to see the wall of awful if you haven't seen it go go look that's life-changing. Like I just sat there and I was just like, you know how the theater closes and you're still just sitting there because you're blown away? That's how I felt when I saw The Wall of Awful for the first time. Thank you. Revolutionary. Life-changing. I write the book this summer. <laughs> yes. I can't wait. If you need a book review, I am on it. Serious. <laughs> well, I haven't written it yet. It might suck. You don't know. <laughs> it won't. <laughs> And that thing you just did right there, that's what we all do, where we give ourselves a compliment or we see something good that we've done and we take it away from ourselves. Yeah. You did something incredible. And when I complimented you, you were like, eh, but I might screw up later. We're always trying to throw out the caveat so that nobody is surprised if we can't get it done. And we all do it. My honest perspective on writing the book is not that the book won't be good when I write it because it, it will be. I'm a good writer and it's a good idea. What I, my biggest sort of hesitancy and, and nervousness around the book is writing it, is the doing of the thing, right? I have two factors working in my favor on the book. One is I am pretty solidly committing to writing this book. And I've committed to it to Eric Tivers. I've committed to it to Jessica McCabe. 
And also my wife is getting ACL surgery this summer and will be home all summer long. Yes, you'll be home with her. Right. So, and she is a phenomenal researcher. Like that's, she's amazing at that. And the side of this book that is the most intimidating for me is the researching side. And so I get to write a book with my wife. Oh my God. And I get to have her support in the research side. And she's looking to sort of shift careers in a direction that having done a book will be useful for her, having done the research side of it. Oh, yeah. And so that's, that's really powerful as a motivator for me as well. And also school is wrapping up. So the principalship that I'm doing right now um, will not be occupying my time in the way that it is right now. Right. And, uh, and so all I have to do is coaching groups, write a book and a handful of clients. That's perfect. Let's support each other in that. Cause I'm writing a book. October is ADHD month. I guess it's not so much of a secret. If I say it on a podcast, I'm planning on releasing a book on my birthday, which is October 24th. Oh, wow. So let's, let's support each other in this and send each other some encouraging messages. Cause I'm going to be spending my summer going on. I'm going on the crazy, like a Fox tour. I'm sure you've seen me yammering on about it. Yeah. But talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So crazy like a Fox is a black mental health tour. We're going to be doing four cities starting on um, May 25th in Atlanta. I'd be lying if I told you the other dates, but if you go to crazy like a Fox tour.com, all of the dates are there and we're going to be talking about dissociative identity disorder, depression, anxiety, ADHD, recovering from domestic violence. It's, it's going to be a really powerful tour and you come out, there's brunch, we'll feed you, we'll pump you full of information. We'll tell you how to get in touch with all of us after the tour. It's going to be a really healing, really healing session. So I'm going to be doing that. And I'm going to be writing a book this summer. What cities are you hitting for Crazy Like a Fox? We're going to be in Atlanta. We're going to be in Charlotte. We're going to be in Philadelphia. And we're going to be in Baltimore. Cool. That's great. I'm really looking forward to it. And again, crazylikeafoxtour.com has all the details that I will never remember in a million years. <laughs> I don't even know how I remembered May 25th. You guys know the dates are not my thing. That's the best thing about working for myself. I can pretend that time doesn't exist for the most part. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great though. That, I mean, and it's, it's so important. I've, I've been um, trying to improve my, um, my, I interview too many white people <laughs> for this podcast um, and, and trying to it, just extend it and, and get more people of various backgrounds. Right. Cause it's, it's not like, black people and Asian people and Middle Eastern people and don't get ADHD. I collect people of color with ADHD. Hit me up. I will send you people. Please do. It's important, right? It's because I don't want to present in this podcast as though it's just a white person disorder because it's not. And it just so happens that my network, as things tend to be in America, is, not, is heavily white and I need to fix that. And I'm doing my best to, do, to make that happen. Let's partner up on it. I'm, I'm totally down to, to hook you up with people and, and support that in any way I can because part of the reason you're having so much trouble finding people of color is because it's so stigmatized right. that most people are just kind of 
sitting off as an island unto themselves and they don't even realize that there are other people out there feeling the same thing. And then when you try to go into like, you know, there's tons of ADHD groups and support groups on Facebook and various other places. And when you go into those spaces and you try to talk about um, the experience of having ADHD and how it plays into race, then you still have to get through all of the objections and the fragility that you would get through with any other community, but with less regulation and emotional control. So it can become a really volatile situation. And there's a lot of ugly things that happen in these groups when people try to talk about race. It's really discouraging. And that sucks. And I'm sorry that that happens. Like I, I'm working as a principal in a private Islamic school right now. It's been really amazing. And even in a private Islamic school, right, I still see like, oh, the little black kid is getting a little more negative attention than the little brown kid. They're doing the same thing, but the darker skinned kid is getting a little more attention, a little more focus drawn on them. And, and I'm sitting back and I'm like, no, that's not happening. Like I'm not, that's not going to happen on my watch. And, and there's only so much I can do around that, but I'm trying my best to be like that. That's not what's going on. Right. It's, it's not the fact that the kids in this class are struggling because the little black kid came into class this year. And that's why things are falling apart. Things are falling apart because now it's a middle school class or now it's a upper elementary school class or whatever. And that's just what happens developmentally at this grade. That's right. I've been teaching at these grade levels forever. And at this grade level, stuff gets a little crazy. Yeah. And that's just the nature of kids developing at that level and the social needs and social interactions they tend to have. The fact that we had this kid come in is just a coincidence. And thank you for recognizing that because so many times people think that other people of color couldn't possibly be racist against other people of color. Like, that's not a thing. Only, only white people can hold these prejudices. It's not true. There's anti-Blackness in just about every culture, including Black culture. There's anti-Latino, anti-Asian. Like, all of these things are out there. And being a part of the culture doesn't mean that you don't have that internalized because that's a message we receive socially. The fact that you recognize that is, you know, good. That's awesome because a lot of people wouldn't have picked up on that. I try to do it right. That's all we can do. Yeah. One of the hardest days I had at the school was um, the day after the shootings in New Zealand, right? Like, I didn't even know what happened because I've done a pretty good job of not paying attention to the news in the morning. Yes. Because I don't need to start my day that way. Mm -mm. But in this, that day, I kind of needed to start my day that way. But I got a text message from one of my teachers and I'm like, what's going on? And so I got to school earlier than I had intended to. And now I'm in a position where I have to talk to fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders about, and it's, it's a pre-K or preschool through eight school, but I'm not going to like fifth grade is sort of the lower limit. Um, and even that's a little, maybe, maybe not. And I'm standing there as not a part of this community, right? Like I'm a part of the community because I'm their sort of interim principal, but I am not a Muslim. So in that way, I'm not a part of their community. Like I am an outsider who happens to be doing his best. Right. And like I'm learning about Ramadan right now. Um, 
but I'm talking to, to these kids and I'm just, and I didn't know what to say outside of like, this is what happened. Here's how we're going to approach it as a school. I can't let you guys have time to give speeches about how angry you are because that'll spread like that'll spread through the school and we'll have an entire school regulated. And that's just as much as I want to validate that stuff. I can't let it happen. Um, Cause then kids who otherwise are not going to be too deeply affected by this because they're in fifth and sixth grade and sort of spaced out and don't not tuned into stuff. You got to protect those kids too. Just like you have to let the eighth graders who are really angry be angry. You also have to let the eighth graders who don't really care and don't really understand it also be that. But I, one of the things I said that I hope they found comforting was that I was standing there as a lapsed Catholic married to a Jew who is the president, who is the principal of an Islamic school. So like there's people out there who can love anybody. Yes. Yes. Like, I don't know if that's useful or not, but I was hoping at least. You know, all of these, all of these attacks can be very discouraging. And, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. So, you know, they had the the shooting at the tree of life a year ago. And I was in San Diego last week when there was a shooting in the synagogue on the anniversary of the tree of life shooting. So it's, we have to band together to make our safe places safe for everybody. Again, whether it's a house to worship, a, a support group, whatever, there's no reason why anybody should be going somewhere for comfort and support and worried about getting shot regardless of what they're there for you know as far as what their religion is or what their color is like that that needs to not be a thing yeah i agree which totally tears us screamingly far away from self-esteem and adhd that was a that was a powerful rabbit hole but i think an important one so yeah it's like maybe in some way all of these things are connected because only a person who hates themselves could do something like that. That level of hatred didn't start outside from outside influences. That's something internal that then blew into something outside, in my opinion, you know, for what it's worth, that that's my take on it. Yeah. It's that hurt people, hurt people idea, right? Like if you're hurting, you're more likely to hurt. I feel like people need to know, like if you're hurting, that's okay, but you need to go get something done about that. Like you don't just let it keep continuing to bleed out and excuse it by saying that you were hurt. You have a responsibility to recognize your hurt and go do something about it. So you're not bleeding all over everyone you come into contact with. Right. And, and there's also the, the fact that hurt people heal people too. Look at us. Right. Exactly. People sort of approach the trauma of their lives in two ways. One way is I suffered this event. I suffered through this thing. And so if I can do it, then you can do it. And it's like, suck it up. You're going to, you can suffer through this thing too. And then there's the other perspective, which is I suffered through this thing. And I don't think that anyone else needs to suffer through that thing. Like, let me figure out a way to not put you in a position where you have to suffer through that thing. Like it's coming up with, um, the idea of free college right now, that same kind of concept, right? Yes. I have student loans and I'm fine. Yeah, but wouldn't you be better off if you didn't have student loans? <laughs> like, so. Why are we so afraid to let someone else have a better, a better shake at things than what we got? That's what I want that. Like, it took me three times 
of getting diagnosed with ADHD. And it took until I was well into adulthood before I actually got some treatment for it. I don't want anybody else to have to come up that way. It's hard and it's painful. There's no redeeming qualities for going through that struggle. You know, people can say that it builds character. I don't want to build character that way. And I don't think anybody else should have to either. Yeah, there's something to be said for the struggle makes us stronger, right? Because that's true. We we do, in fact, learn and grow stronger from going through trials and tribulations. That said, they don't need to be any harder than they need to be. Exactly. We can just think and eliminate. Like, it was the craziest thing. It was last Tuesday. I met a girl online, and she was talking about, I have a um, group for Black women with ADHD, and she had joined the group. And I had put up one of the ads for Crazy Like a Fox. And she was like, oh, I live near the Impact Hub in Baltimore. I'll come by. And I said, great. A friend of mine runs a workshop on Tuesday nights. It just so happened to be Tuesday. I said, if, you, if you're near the Impact Hub anyway, you know, that's a really great healing space. You know, head on over there. So I was going to meet this friend because we were flying out to San Diego the next day and she called me and she's like, you've got to get here right now. That girl you invited is here and she is telling us a story that has us in here blubbering, crying, and she wants to meet you. I want to make sure you get here before she leaves. So this woman got diagnosed with ADHD the day before I spoke to her and she was considering suicide. Wow. And she found my blog in the middle of the night. Holy cow, Renee. It blows my mind to think that, like, for me to know that that did that for her, all that suffering wasn't in vain. And that's why I do what I do. And I, I think that's why most of us do what we do in, in the healing spectrum. We don't want people to suffer needlessly if they can gain something from our suffering. Right. Every time you come into contact with someone and they're like, thank you so much for this. It's just like there's a piece of of that isolation and that loneliness and that need that kind of it wasn't for nothing. Because you're paying it forward. Brendan, it was the strangest thing. I'm the only admin for that group. I screen it strenuously. I don't remember approving her. I don't know how she found my blog in the middle of the night. Like, it's like, of all the things she could have run across, I'm so glad it was me. So am I. I'm, I'm not so bad. I'm pretty awesome in my own right. But I don't think it was so much that she found Renee Brooks. It's that she found somebody who she could see herself in. And she knew if this chick is okay, I'm going to be able to get through this too. No, here's why it matters that she found Renee Brooks. This is why it had to be you. This is why it matters that it was you. Because you sent her physically to a place that was close to her because you have a geographical awareness and network that allowed you to say, go there. And that's different than the etherealness of the internet. You know what? That's a good point. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Because that's what we have to do. Like, I think sometimes people get so caught up in, well, I'm this coach. I'm this end-all, be-all. Not everybody has every skill. Like, 
that wall of awful stuff it's like y'all go talk to brendan about wall of awful why would i teach you the wall of awful when i can have the person who came up with it teach it to you perfectly and answer all the questions and 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 related to that my geographical network is not that great like i'm pretty good with massachusetts but i couldn't point someone in baltimore to anything but you know what i could have used you the other week because i had a girl who was looking for a therapist in Boston. She wanted a black therapist in Boston. I'm on the internet searching, searching. I could have called you if I'd have realized you were in Massachusetts. I was thinking you were out in the Midwest because that's where Eric is. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm in Massachusetts. <laughs> so feel free. I'm working on improving my network. <laughs> we all need to be able to work together like that and say, hey, I might ha- I might not have what you need, but let me put you over here with this person who has what you need. Yeah. Our network starts where it ends, really. My network is all well and good, but my network really starts at the people that you know because you have an entrance into a world that I don't have for all kinds of reasons. You have an entrance in a bunch of different worlds that I don't have, right? Yeah. We already talked about I want to have more people of color on this podcast and you're like, that's my network. Let me do that. Yeah. So that's my network starting at yours in the same way that your network starts at mine. That's it. And, you know, I think it's important for us as people who are promoting healing for others. Like we got to get, we got to get strong in connecting with each other so that we have those resources so we can all help the people that we need to help. We don't need to be islands unto ourselves. And that's what shame is doing to us. Yeah, well, you have to be willing to have the self-esteem to know that you matter and and the humility, but also the openness to say, yeah, no, my network starts at the people I don't know. That's where it becomes powerful is just one step beyond. And that means we have to be able to ask the people that we know, the people who are in our network, if they can tap into their network for us to help us get the resources that we need, whether it's an African-American counselor in Boston or it's a support group in Baltimore. It makes a difference. And I'll tell you what, I started trauma therapy. And like, I I keep hearing about, you know, find a black therapist, find a black therapist. I didn't think it would make as big of a difference as it did. It has made a dramatic difference in my experience to be able, it's not so much that the person looks like me across the table. You know what it is really? It's that I don't have to translate my life experience. That sucks up time in session where you need to be getting to the root of the issue. And instead, you're explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining why it affected you this way. Because sometimes people don't understand. And it's not your fault. They're not bad therapists. I've had excellent therapists over the years. But they couldn't reach me in the area of my trauma because they didn't understand my fi- my family dynamic. One of the ways I've been looking at that, because you know me in metaphors, one of the metaphors I've been using for that is that it's different operating systems. Yes. I look at it through the lens of this principalship that I'm going through, right? That I'm doing. I kind of run the Windows operating system of American culture, right? Like that's the operating system that I run. And Islamic culture is like, it's like they're running... Apple. Apple or Linux or, uh, or Opera or one of those things that it's like, you know about it, you know it exists, 
but you don't know how to run it. Yeah, and and most of the stuff translates over, right? Like I can I can call up a text document and it's going to have all the words there and it's going to look mostly the same, but like the margins are different or instead of having an apostrophe where everything has an apostrophe, you've got like an ampersand and an and a semicolon instead and you're not really sure why that is and it makes everything look weird and it's harder to read, but you can kind of get through it. And those little tiny changes are enough over the long term to make it much harder to read that document and understand what's going on. Brendan, you got it exactly. That's that's exactly what it is. It's easy to get into the, well, they don't understand and sink back off into yourself and then you're not addressing the issue. And it's not anybody's fault, but I, I just, I think, I think we owe it to ourselves to keep looking until we find the combination that's going to work. And not just when we're unfixable. Yeah, because you're not. And, and, and especially because the thought of being unfixable so quickly leads to unlovable. And that is also not true. That's it. Because you're lovable. You're fantastic. Thank you. You are too. I'm so excited that we got to be together today. I've been looking forward to it all afternoon, really. So have I. Yeah, I am too. And so just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? Man, I think we covered everything. Like this was, this was good. Like we're, we're, we're some pretty clever folks, Brendan, if I do say so myself. You make it easy. Yeah. Back at you. See, and this is what we need to do. We just need to meet up every once in a while and pump each other back up. Like, no, I'm awesome. No, you're awesome. Yes, we're both awesome. (laughs) And get these darn books done. That's the plan for the summer. I might have to open up an ADHD we're all writing books Facebook page because there's four of us and I am not at liberty necessarily to share who the other two are, but there's at least four of us. <laughs> Listen, we, we need that. Like I've got this hit list of people, right? Because it's not good enough to just do a book. I have to completely overwhelm myself by doing a webinar in conjunction with the book, which leads up to the release of the book, which is what I need you for. Cool. That's more than I'm doing for my book. I'm just going to get it written. I'll figure out launching after I'm done. <laughs> I'm not doing it by myself. Like, and that's, you know what? I think that's another thing that maybe when we see people who are ADHD and they're successful, so to speak, we need to be more honest about what supports we're putting in place to make us look as successful as we look because I wouldn't be able to put any of this together if I didn't have a business manager. Like she manages my calendar. She helped me map out the steps to get all of this done. Like I'm not doing this by myself. I wouldn't dare attempt just like you, you're doing the reason you're doing the book. Your wife's helping you with the research. Like I think we all have to be really, really transparent about that. Because people are watching us and they need to see that we're not doing it all ourselves. We're not like some magical ADHD people who are doing things they could never, ever do. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. 
In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.